property bears love a market downturn. They'll often be heard predicting that Australian property prices will fall 40%. And when pushed on why they think this is going to happen, many refer to what happened in the American property market back in 2008 to 2011 as a warning sign of what can happen here. Yet, there are some significant structural differences between the two markets. In the main, we don't have non-recourse lending and our regulations have always been tighter than in the US. But am I being blinded by my own property bias? Are we at risk of a major crash? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Recently, I've been listening to some American property podcasts and I've become a bit of a fan of David Sedoni's How to Buy a Home, which he started back in 2019 because he was sick and tired, to quote him, of seeing first home buyers being treated like garbage by the real estate industry. Now, he kept seeing them being passed over by experienced realtors, that's what they called over there, not real estate agents, and used as guinea pigs for brand new agents to get their feet wet and learn how to be realtors. On his podcast, he peels back the curtain for first home buyers and lets them know the insider secrets on how to find the rare professionals that would give them the service they deserve. He's also a bit of a numbers man and, like us really, likes to go on a bit of a rant. After hearing his explanation of how lending regulations have tightened in that country since the GFC, I thought a bit of a history lesson and a comparison of the two markets would be really great for our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Australia. Great to meet you. <laughs> Oh, I'm so excited to be here. And yes, the big difference is that we call them realtors and God knows why we call them first time buyers. But now I catch myself on my show because I listen to yours so much calling them first home buyers. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) David, um, Veronica and I always just uh, have chats on, you know, certain conversations we we think would be valuable, right? And uh, the US conversation has definitely been on our list, right? You know, because I think it's important to get a global perspective. Um, and the global story is always changing, in particular now, you know, the US markets and interest rates. And so it's quite topical to discuss that. But I think we should go back before we sort of go forward. And I think maybe we we go back to the the dark days of the, the, the credit, would you call it a credit crisis? Now? I mean, we called it a GFC in Australia, a great financial crisis. When I was, I was actually living in the UK, it was called a credit yeah. crisis there, you know, the what did that come in? Were they even called it in the US? It was a different name. So back to those days, what actually happened? Um, obviously, everyone's watched The Big Short and have an idea roughly what happened, but it'd be good to sort of see your on-the-ground experience and, you know, the learnings you took away from those that, those days. Uh, well, I am uniquely qualified because I was there and went through it, uh, and we did call it the Great Recession. Um, right. GFC is definitely an international term. Um, if I don't know it, a gigantic real estate nerd, then um, <laughs> in the U.S., then I'm pretty sure uh, the general public doesn't. Uh, the Great Recession is the term that came with that because you have to remember, and again, I've been spending a ton of time right now defending and explaining to people the difference between 2008 and 
what's happening right now in the U.S. And to do that, we have to do exactly what you talked about. Um, go back. So if you go back and look at the history, the big short explains it in a, a the most phenomenal way. Um, I also recommend the margin call if you want to get really deep into the weeds yeah. on it. But to understand the way the, 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 with the U.S. and the Great Recession that caused the global economy, yes, the housing market was the impetus to it, but the housing market started summer 2007. October 2008 was Wall Street behind it. Now, yeah. what happened was the, the affordability of homes in 2007 got completely out of control because we had such ridiculously easy lending practices. So. Yeah. You know, the the history behind it is 19, you know, went through the 90s recessions and then in 98, um, I don't know what happened, but in 98, the, the lenders just started to like release the guidelines, government monetary policies in the U.S., changed a bit the beginning of the artificial holding back and the quantitative easing that they were doing to artificially inflate where the GDP and where the economy in general was going helped mm. keep the interest rates down. And I remember in 2006, when I was selling real estate where people would kiss me on the lips for a 6% rate. So that <laughs> time frame of what happened back then. So in the U S the thing that was the most phenomenal was in 2005, we usually sell, you know, like four to 5 million units a year. And like, if you look at the chart of how many homes are being sold, just volume of units sold, 2002, three and four, we made these crazy jumps from like three to four and a half to five. And then everyone was like, oh my gosh, that's going crazy. And then in 2005, we sold 7.1 million homes, 7.1 million transactions, highest by far by like 30%, 40% of those were second homes. But you also, right. so you... So you had volumes going up, sales volumes going up at a really great rate of knots. At the same time, prices were rising. Absolutely. Because normally it goes going, the other way. Exactly. The, the, the anomaly of what happened pre-2000, again, pre-2007, uh, and then 2008 was the, the Wall Street crash because it started to show cracks in what was happening because of the housing the lenders were giving money to everyone. I remember, you know, I, I got my license early 2006 and I remember early in my career, people in my office talking about someone telling me, David, I think this is trouble because he helped a guy get a $700,000 home. The guy was telling his gardener about it. The gardener bought the home down the street a week later <laughs> because yeah. he could go and get a loan. And that was an actual true story. So what was happening yeah. was, yeah, the affordability was out of control, but they were offering two things. They were offering what we called no-nos, which fog a mirror, you get a loan, no income, no asset verification. But the other thing they were doing is they were offering these variable rates because telling everybody this was going to go on forever. And everyone just, mm. they said, hey, don't worry about it. Just get in, get a variable rate. So you were getting, you know, a low five or, you know, four and a half percent rate, which was ridiculous. No one had ever heard of that. And yeah, right. it was on a seven year balloon or a 10 year balloon. And you just, and they just said, don't worry about it. You know, when the values, when the value goes up and you could just refinance and drop it back down. Uh, <laughs> and so people were get, being able to get a loan so easily that, it didn't matter that prices were going up. 
it was there was a whole lot of uh, it was it was the origination of FOMO in the states. Nobody wanted to miss out, and so everybody was buying. And that forty percent of secondary homes purchased of that seven point one million in two thousand five, it just goes to show you how many people were thinking I'm going to be a real estate investor. It was so many people buying single family homes, thinking that this is how they were going to build their empire. Yeah, so it wasn't second homes to uh, live in, like a holiday house. These were like people buying investment properties, which that typically, do you think that's part a big part of the US market? Like, just, you know, in Australia, around 30% of properties are owned by investors, I guess, you know, and 30% of transactions. You know, different suburbs is different, much greater percentage or less percentage. But, you know, of your sort of real estate transactions, sales, you know, do you know what go to like investors, the people who are buying them just to rent them out rather than to live in them? 25% is where we feel comfortable. Kind of like, okay. you know, we have, we have a bunch of different indicators, six month supply with that stupid stat they use month supply, which is the, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you guys use that stat. I hate it because yep. your clients look at you like, what the hell does that mean? It's like, um, but, <laughs> The 25% is, is where they like it. Okay. Um, but I always tell people, if you're looking at the investor stats too hard, if you are an investor, um, you know, there's an old investing adage, which is if you're hearing about it, if it's on your freaking TikTok, you're six months too late. And yes. Air, Airbnb is blowing up right now. And there are all over Twitter in the last couple of weeks, I've seen thousands of people complaining about how their airbnbs that were rented for 30 days a month are now not no renting at all um, really as yeah, oh yeah as the economy changes i, I just yeah to when when your average joe jumps in and that goes from 25 to 30 percent or 40 percent like that there's going to be a lot of people that don't know what they're doing and they should have been doing it a long time ago. People, you know, were calling me in you know the end of 2021 going yes this is great and i'm like yeah, no, actually, it was January 16th when interest rates were at 2.66, the lowest in history. It was great in January. You missed it. So I'll help you, but be careful. So, I mean, let's go to, let's go to the current market now. I mean, because I was watching, uh, like, Veronica, I was watching some, you know, information around the U.S. interest rates just a few weeks back and, you know, looking at their fixed rates, you know, because obviously you've got your 30-year mortgages, which is a versus, like, you know, 80 90% of our loans typically are on variable mortgages and maybe we – we fix a little bit when they're really competitive and then we don't fix any at all and et cetera. But in the US, it's kind of the opposite, right? Like pretty much everyone's on a fixed rate mortgage. And, you know, what are they like now? Like 7% or something crazy, right? They've gone from 2% to 7% or something to 30-year mortgages? 2.66 in January of 2022. Uh, and then around March, it suddenly. And, and then so it was like you could get in the threes at the beginning of the year. Then it yep. jumped from three. Then it jumped from three to five from March to May, and now yep. uh, it's seven point one percent. And yes, you are correct. You know, I would say over the last five years, when we've been in this real boom time, it's probably yep. ninety ninety five percent fixed. The only people using adjustable or variable in any capacity are uh, investors. Yeah. So let's it's, let's dig into that fixed thing because from my understanding, tell me if I'm wrong, you can fix for the entire length of the loan in America, but you can't hear. 30 years. Wow. And it's mm. and it's precisely why the investing side in America is so attractive because um it's 
technically not legal, but if you're 30 or 50 miles outside of where you live and you buy another house, you can call it a second home and you can put that under a mortgage as though you're buying it and you will get, you can do low down payments, our government three and a half percent and 5% down on a 30 year fixed. All right. So you could buy it as a second home and then, you know, after you've signed up to a 30 year mortgage, rent it out as an investment and get Airbnb income and things like that. But you've locked in a home loan rate rather than an investor rate um, because you said it was just a second home that you would use on weekends or something like that. Correct. And probably yeah. one of the biggest, the biggest difference is, and, and, and you could, if you had a larger down payment for an investment, um, typically yeah. it, it jumps from 20 to 30 when you're calling an investment, but you can still get a 30% down, um, yeah. but you can still get a 30 year fixed with 30% down for if you just, if you're, if it's your fifth or sixth house. Yeah. And I think with the fixed rates though, like it's, it sounds great. You get this 30 year deal, but that's assuming you live in that property, right? Like I think, you know, we call it mortgage prisoners here, but you know, you always get like housing prisoners there in the U S right now where, you know, let's say you're a starter family, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just sort of hypothetically talking this through, you know, you've bought a little two-bed cottage because it's your entry point into the market. You've got yourself a 3% fixed rate for 30 years, but the plan was to flip that in three years and now you look at interest rates and they're 7% and that's 7% a year. So you go, I'm living really cheap right now in this little two-bed. For me to go from a two-bed to a four-bed, a, it's more money, but B, I've got to go from a 2% mortgage to a 7% mortgage or something like that. And are you finding that that's really, you know, people are getting stuck maybe because they can't afford to upgrade A, because the cost, but B, because their mortgage is going to go through the roof. Yeah, and we're we, we are definitely seeing that with, uh, especially now over the past two or three years, we have this crazy uh, housing shortage and inventory shortage because yep. the two to three year people, there's no way that they're going to put their home on the market right now because they don't want to jump to that. So, and I think the, as far as, you know, what you're talking about for the entry level there, it really stagnates at a much bigger pace than you would anticipate because the people who were got into a fixed with a low rate probably got just enough information at that time to get in. And when rates mm -hmm. go to five, six, and seven, they're not savvy enough to understand how to use the adjustable rate. I like the fact that you guys are working with variables early because your clientele have to have a higher financial acumen going into the deal. I mean, my sales pitch in uh, the States is rents have been out of control for so long. And I just tell them, look, you're freaking out about gas prices. I'm gonna lock you in at five bucks a gallon for 30 years. How would you like that? And that appeals to a lot of entry level buyers, and mm. so it kind of it kind of separates understanding how to use your home as a financial tool, um, and realizing that you can you know I mean I have people freaking out right now. There's no way I'm going to buy for seven percent. That's insane. And I'm like, well, you, you have two options. You buy at seven percent, and then it goes up and stays up for ten years. And you're excited that you're at seven and not at eight and a half, or you buy at seven and it goes down next year. Like you're freaking out at me right now. And that's why you don't want to buy great. Then you just do a refinance and get into another loan. But people's mindset is so right. stuck on not being able to, they just don't see ways how to penetrate beyond 
an interest rate, which is hysterical because my parents bought homes at 18%. So do you find people stuck in mortgages though? Like, cause let's say you're on a 7%. Um, I assume you're seeing some type of repricing of housing and property over there. You know, you don't see a massive increase in the cost of funding without um, prices getting re- re- changed, right? So you're seeing some massive drops in pri- property prices across the country, like in terms of certain pockets. So br- bringing it all together, uh, we are seeing an adjustment, but absolutely not massive. Yeah. In 2008, what we had, this is, this is not going to be a crash. In 2008, we had 600% more inventory. In right. 2008, the, I mean, the, the amount of, uh, and then, so then in 2008, everybody was upside down because everybody was buying a home in 2003, four and five, it, the home equity loans were, they were given those out like candy and everybody was mortgaging their home to the hilt. Right. Yeah. And so everybody was upside down right now. The average homeowner in America has got like $300,000 worth of equity. So we're not going to see a crash. We're not going to see people reduce prices because people are sitting there not trapped with a three or 4% loan and they don't want to list their houses. So we are not seeing people. So it's, it's this stalemate and it's going to stay a stalemate. We're just starting to see in the past six to eight weeks here uh, in early November, um, the beginnings of price reductions. But as I tell people, it's reducing from stupid, crazy to now it's just hot. We're not even mm. to normal yet. So we're not seeing massive decreases yet. If 7% stays for six months, we might see 5 and 10% off. But our volume's down, but our sales price right. is still going to finish up for the year. Fascinating. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's interesting because you've got like the 30-year mortgage is almost like a uh, real stress test, like a buffer i guess for the market right because if you've got everyone who've got on refinance and got themselves on low rates not just people who have bought in the last couple of years it sounds like you can easily refinance to new 30-year loans there'll probably a refinance boom you know alongside an investment boom um and so then everyone's just going to say well yeah rates are going up but i'm on a 30-year deal whereas in australia you can only really get a fixed rate up to five years and you know a lot of people were fixing two three and four you know, one, and there's most of our fixed rates are coming off next year. And then we're going to go from, you know, two, three percent rates to sort of fives and sixes. And so the Australian sounds like we're in a much worse position there because the whole market's going to get repriced to higher interest rates. But in the US, it's only new transactions. And, um, and it sounds like everyone's not selling. So the transaction numbers will be falling. And so, um, yeah, that must make it really hard for the government, though, to control inflation, though, because. You know, if you up interest rates, um, you will naturally on the people with mortgages. But if you can't up their mortgage expense, how are you going to really slow the economy down? With because your inflation is a lot stronger than um, what we've got at problems over here. Yeah, it's been interesting because I've been I've been watching what's going on in the UK, um, and you know, seeing the the inflation in Turkey, and you know, I mean, there's crazy yeah. inflation happening all over the place. Uh, we we're kicking the can down the road. We've had, uh, you know, I can't believe I'm saying this. It's almost 20 years of government manipulation of the interest rates. 
um, starting back with our Fed chair way back in the day, a guy named Alan Greenspan, who was the original person who created what we call quantitative easing, and, and the government was buying mortgage-backed securities. By doing that, it was an artificial way to push things down. Um, I, I truly believe if we had the the five percent or, or the five year um there would there would just be a lot more conversation and a lot more thought behind what we're doing um you know and that's why like uh, when i when i found you know veronica and you guys have that the podcast talking to uh first home buyers it was so exciting to me because it went a little more in depth it, you guys get when it comes to the financial stuff um, and here, uh, people can figure out, okay, I just don't want to rent anymore because rents are going so crazy. And then it's a safety net and they mm. jump in and they stay there, which is precisely why where we're at right now, you know, the other thing that we're not talking about is the fact that we're, we're in a bull stock market, the American stock market now for age, usually four years up, we're going on since 2009. So yeah, if the stock yeah. market crash happens, who knows, but in general, there's there's going to be a lot of buyers next year um the the first time buyer mindset in the states too is they've only been looking at this for six months 12 months 18 months <laughs> well, when they the see their all when, buyers yeah <laughs> you know that all because all buyers only look in the period of time in which they're looking to buy they're not you know observing the entire cycles of markets so any buyer will think oh this is what the property market is like based on what they're experiencing at that time and so we do like to pull back and say look actually this is all just part of the cycle particularly here because obviously we've got that um we've got those shorter cycles of fixed rates and we've got the much more uh, of immediate impact of um, changes to the cash rate and variable rates so therefore the dynamics I guess it's a little bit more dynamic, perhaps. You, you said something earlier that I thought was quite interesting. You talked about rents going through the roof, uh, but also the Airbnb market is really um, tightening markedly because of uh, – are you guys in recession yet or are you about to go into recession or yeah. however? But well, the, the technical definition is two quarters in a row where our gross domestic product, it goes negative, and we had two, but then our third uh, unexpectedly went up. So <laughs> yeah, okay. it's prob it's probably going to be next year. So the Airbnb thing is interesting. What happened was the the uh, Airbnb as a company was trying to you know at the end of this big run up, one of the big things they did was they they came in and they changed fees and regulations. A lot of people were having problems with cleaning um, fees and people having parties and you know the the Generation Z. Um, run it. Oh my God, how old can I sound when Gen Z, uh, was getting out there and, you know, 12 of them would take their trip of the lifetime and they'd rent the house and they'd destroy it. And so Airbnb owners were asking for regulation. Oops, you got it. Fees, fees, fees. So now you <laughs> tack that on with two months of, or, or two quarters of everyone saying it's bad, yeah. it's bad, it's bad. And now, and, and the other thing too is that also was becoming the, when it's on TikTok and 25 year olds are talking about how much money they made last month and it, it's just, it's going to blow up in people's faces and that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense though. Like you've got a, and when you 
shut the borders, right? We had to holiday at home. I'm sure Americans yeah. traveled around the country more than they ever did. Um, you're quite patriotic over there anyway, so I'm sure you probably did that anyway. But, um, you know, you, that would have encouraged, you know, more people using Airbnbs, right, because they're exploring their own state and their own country versus going overseas, et cetera. Um, and then you would have saw more people would have listed their properties on Airbnb, right, so there's probably more listings. And then everyone not, is no longer traveling, right, because they're worried about their, their cost of living and their inflation and maybe that holiday gets, you know, parked, et cetera. So um, I think that's going to happen a little bit here as well, actually. You know, you can see the explosion um, of new listings on Airbnb and um, all of a sudden it starts doesn't make sense, you know. When you look at the Airbnb and the clean fees and all those sort of things, am I really making much more money when the rental market, I could rent it out and rents have gone up? So, yeah, you could easily see that um, sort of shift. I wouldn't mind talking about the um, – because there's a whole different process around the – uh, you know, buyers agents over there and uh, and real estate agents and like the differentiation. I mean, buyers agents probably do under 1% of the transactions here, you know. Would you say that's probably right, Veronica? Maybe like um, of... It's a, a guesstimate at best because there's absolutely no official figures. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's been very much less than 5%, that's for sure. Less than 5%. But in the US, is it like, I just don't understand it. What percentage of transactions is there a buyers agent? Is it not 100%? Is it 90%? I don't know. How does it all work? Well, I can't imagine why you can't understand it because here in the States, uh, in U.S., we call the person who sells the home the listing agent and we call the person who helps the buyer buy the home the selling agent. So explain to me how that makes any damn sense. The That's whole thing weird. is yeah. – re- yeah. It, it, <laughs> so anyone who has a, a real estate license can uh, operate on both sides of the transaction, the buyer side or the seller side. Right. Um, in some states – uh, dual agency, as we call it, is actually illegal. Um, and, mm. you know, in, in my personal opinion, that makes sense because the buyer doesn't have an advocate. The seller was the, the seller hired the listing agent first. Um, so, you know, who are they going to have? Whose best interest are they going to have? Uh, but double ending, as we like to call it, where the listing agent goes out and brings the buyer in is the end all be all for the wonderful, greedy industry that we have out here. Um, in general, buyers agents are we're we're seeing a shift. Brokers used to be the the hub, and their business model was get as many people as you can to come in and be the big hot agent and have your picture on the the bus bench ads. And then people started doing that and realizing I have a ceiling. I can only do so many transactions a year. So now the broker is becoming less and less important and the team is becoming important. And the team dynamic is I'm the agent. I'm the rainmaker, as they call it. I just do the listings. Let me get this kid who just got their real estate license. You're the buyer's agent. And so for right. every transaction, you know, the only time you will really see an experienced agent working with a buyer is when they're selling their home and they're, and they're moving up. They're buying another. Uh, but on most transactions, right. you know, when we go to list a home, you list a home and uh, you put the lockbox on the front door and the realtors representing the buyers individually will take them to go see all the homes and they'll be their representative throughout the transaction. And then so the me, buyer me... pays them. Do they? Sorry. No. Who, who, so I pay a realtor to take me around lots of different properties and nope. they go to, they Sell just go to their own properties? No, the seller pays. Right. 
So that, the they, seller, you, what would a standard commission be? So it's five or six percent. The sales six percent, six percent from the seller's profits of their sale. The seller takes three percent and gives it to their listing agent, and then they offer three percent to the buyer's agent realtors to bring their people and make an offer on the home. So the buyers don't pay for their own service. And I and I love this because a lot of people will say to me, oh, you know, it should be like in America because everyone uses a buyer's agent. I mean, yeah, the reason everybody uses a buyer's agent in America is because the buyers aren't paying. It's established that the vendor pays a higher commission rate. Here, the st- you'd be honestly, a, a vendor paying 3% is really unusual now to sell the house. Now, now you'll get fees sub 2%, right? Yeah. Um, particularly as volumes go down and agents are hungry and they're, they're all a bit starving at the moment. So sure. they will compete on fees, right? So, so if the vendor in Australia is paying, say, 1.65% commission, that all goes to the sales agent or the listing agent. And what happens here is that we have the team thing as well. So you have the, the, the listing agent, the rainmaker with their face on the bus shelter. Um, they've got a team as well. And in their team, we'll have their their newbies, their their junior associates, or whatever yeah. they want to call them, and that that's what they call the buyer. You know, they're working the buyers. Similar sort of structure, except with a lot less commission in this country, and it's and the buyer's agent is a separate entity who is paid for by the buyer. So the buyer, and this is reason we've got such a low uptake in, in Australia for buyer's agents, because buyers think, well, I, I shouldn't have to pay, you know, I yeah. should get this for free. And over in America though, the vendors, man, they're getting stiffed because they're basically stumping up 6% commission, a lot more money that they're paying out. Um, but also the reality is that nobody's really acting for the buyer. Nobody's really acting for the seller in a way. They're only acting for themselves because we want to get a cut of this money. So <laughs> it's, it's an unfortunate system. Yeah, it's an unfortunate system. And the reason a- after helping first time homebuyers myself for 13 years and my wife saying, you're only happy when you work with them. Why are you building this team and doing all this other <laughs> stuff? The more research I did into the way that America runs it versus the rest of the world, the more I realized that, um, you know, I don't know how much you guys paid attention to the GameStop thing that happened with the stock yeah. market in America. Yeah. Um, I'm telling my people, we got about, I'm guessing, seven to 10 years. The online agencies keep trying and keep failing. Zillow and Open Door, um, mm-hmm. and they, they haven't figured it out. And for, for me, what I see is the sellers are getting absolutely ripped off, and the buyers right now need to realize what you have in America is golden and you have the opportunity to have someone represent you for free yet the team leader, instead of sending them LeBron James or instead of sending them Ronaldo or instead of sending them another <laughs> example of someone who plays rugby, because I don't know crap about rugby, then they send them <laughs> to some weekend warrior dad down at the YMCA. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, who it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And sooner or later, the sellers are going to start. That's the reason why all the online places in America have been trying so hard. Sellers are thrilled when someone tells them, what are you doing? Why are you paying 6%? Mm. 
I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. And if you'd like a 30% discount plus free postage for my book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property, Even Though You're Scared Shitless, and yes, I'm a potty mouth, use the code ELEPHANT at the checkout, veronicamorgan.com.au. You're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. So in the, in Australia, we get a lot of, gov- you said government manipulation of interest rates, but we also get a lot of governments manipulating our property market in lots of different ways, you know, um, yeah, how much we can borrow, um, incentives for first home buyers like grants and stamp duty sort of concessions, um, you know, government manipulation around sort of zoning. There's lots of ways the government manipulates prices and um, ultimately it's to push up prices, right? Um, you know, because that it makes a wealthier nation and we spend more money. Like that's the ultimately the idea. Um, and, we create, and we get more taxes. So does the government do that at a national level and then is it a, and then a state level where they also manipulate it? Like do they try to get in there and pumping up prices like they do in Australia or do they sort of leave it more would manipulate interest rates rather than manipulate what buyers and sellers are doing. They work more on the big picture as opposed to the individual things. I'm fascinated when I listen to uh, your first time buyer podcast with the stamp, whatever the heck that is. Yeah. I need to go. Yeah. yeah. I need to Google it. Cause I'm like, what we have first time buyer grants, but, um, with a lot of with a lot of American uh, government programs, like we heard a lot about Biden's uh, college loan forgiveness, he's going to be uh, something that he's implemented and just got started. They all have a a, a, a kitty, uh, an amount of money, and when it's gone, it's gone. Right. Uh, in two in two thousand ten, they had an eight thousand dollar incentive for first time buyers because the market was so terrible that you could get a, a big refund on your taxes. Um. Most of the time, they're short-lived. They run out of money. Um, some states, and uh, depending on, uh, in like we like to say in America, what color your 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 state is, red or blue, because the red the red states want no taxes. The blue states want to uh, tax are, yeah. are fine with taxes as long as it's helping people. So mm-hmm. there are there are some state and county, but in general, it sounds like your government manipulation is much more targeted. Whereas our government manipulation is truly based on the Fed rate and moving that and then finding other larger services to pump in. There have been there there have been multiple talks about first time buyer uh, federal, you know, full state stuff, but they always get shot down. Gotcha. So what about taxes? I like I mean, so the taxes around like is there? Like a capital gains tax exemption, like do you have to pay that on your home over there? Like, so do you pay tax if you make a profit on your home? Um, 
is that the same as if you had it as an investment property as in you rented it out? Because um, that's that's another way they manipulate the market here. You know, you don't pay any tax if you sell your home. Um, but if you sell an investment property, you pay, you know, 25% tax, let's call it, just around numbers. Um, yeah. How does it sort of work over there? We've got uh, this beautiful uh, American tax code called the 1031 exchange. Um, if you sell your personal property, there is a cap, uh, $250,000 for an individual, uh, $500,000 for a married couple um, is tax-free. Um, right. The 1031 exchange is a manipulation where if you purchase a property and you and you keep it as a rental and then you purchase another property of similar or higher price, you can roll 100% of the profit in it and not get taxed on it for that next ah. property. <laughs> and then you just keep moving it down and down and down and hope and wait that the, the administration, when you die, gets rid of the estate tax like they did. You know, that was the big thing is it was it's the estate tax. It's the de death tax. It was being called different things by different parties because they, you know, people were saying, well, that's not fair. The rich people don't even pay. Um, and then so that's the manipulation that we do on that. Um, so our investors usually roll into another property wow. and just keep it going. Yeah, the, the the investors out here just talk about it's fine to start with a single family, but rather than buying multiple different single families, just uh, roll in, use a 1031, and just keep getting more and more doors. That's huge because one of the things that stops our investors to sell is capital gains tax, right? So and we'll get clients that bought this property and it's, it's a bit of a dud. But it's grown and if they do have to sell they've had it for 20 years yeah it's grown but it hasn't grown massively but they do have to sell they'll pay 100 or 200 grand of capital gains tax when they sell but there they just literally could sell that dud then roll that gain into another property um and then constantly just delay capital gains tax obviously till death um and then maybe there's inheritance tax and things like that but on the home so you can make 500 grand as a couple profit yep. You don't pay any capital gains tax. Now, if you make, say, a million dollars, what's sort of the tax on that? Do you only pay so any you're pay the So then you're going to pay the, the capital gains tax on uh, anything above the – so in, in that case, 500 tax-free, 500 yeah. capital gains tax, and that changes administration to administration. Yeah. Sometimes so let's say it's 20% or something tax. like that or 30% or something. Um, yeah. But then you could then – so you make your 500, but then you'd be incentivized to upgrade, wouldn't you? Because – you would, you know, because then you get another five hundred tax free you can make, right? So whereas so here we can hop the cap. So yeah, you've, you've got to stay there. You've, you've got to keep stay there. Upgrading. Yeah, in, in short jumps. There. Yep, you, you have to live in the property two out of the last five years, and okay. there are see, and and this is the thing: if you understand the history, and because in two thousand eleven I did a huge seminar talking to people about. Uh, the, the, we have estate planners for the trust, and the guy in January, the estate big estate planner, he brings it all thousand clients and has a guest speaker. So every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, I was guest speaking to a thousand people, and they were all so scared. And I said, right now is the time to buy. Right now is it's 2011. We've been going down. Go out and buy a condo near our university. It's gonna. It, you don't have to keep it up. Uh, you know, have you seen a dorm room? It can be a dump and you're always going to get paid because the parents are paying the rent, not the 18 and 19 year old kid in there. <laughs> not one person wanted to touch it. 
um, I said the same thing to contractors. In 2012 and 2013, I was saying, hey, this is what you can do. Buy a dump, live in it for two years, and just make it your project. On your weekends, mm. work the house. As the market yeah. goes up, after two years, sell it, no tax, do it again. And I did have yeah. three guys that did that, and they, they did it from 2012 to 2020. Just kept every two years would move, flip it up, no taxes. Well, it makes sense because 250, you know, property prices, let's say you buy something at 300,000, even making a 250 game as a single would be a massive gain. So you could, you know, realistically flip houses for free. Um, and it sounds like you don't do any type of transaction cost besides the 6% selling cost. Um, doesn't sound like there's an entry cost, like a stamp duty. Um, so as long as you're making more than your 6% transaction cost, um, and making money on the build. I mean, is that really an issue at the moment though with builds? Because in Australia, getting materials, you know, timber, cement, etc., nightmare in terms of price. So it sounds like they are coming back, but also getting labor and, you know, uh, tradies basically. Is that similar in the US? You're having a real big issue around the cost of building and, and getting, you know, renovations done? Yeah. Uh I also just want to clarify, we do have uh, above the 6%, you will have fees. We call them something different, about a percent and a half on top of. All right, seven so, and a half now. Wow. So seven and a half. Seven and a half is total. When I sit down at a presentation with people to talk to them about selling their house, I tell them to take their, their number that we're guessing, multiply it by 92.5, and then mm. subtract your mortgage. That's how much money you make. So mm. that's... So that's that's a big uh, now with investors so the, a lot on, of times, you, are, but the costs are on the exit. Then you don't have any costs on the entry. You as you as a buyer do have closing costs as well, right? You as the buyer have you 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 don't pay your agent, but you have costs, uh, closing costs, which are probably the most difficult thing to explain to anyone because they are based on things that there's no way to anticipate until you have a closing date. So right. <laughs> you'll you'll end up paying if you pay three and a half weeks mortgage or if you pay five days mortgage, that's going to be a huge difference to a first time home buyer. If you mm -hmm. if you have to buy prepay six months of taxes or if you have to pay one month of taxes and the same thing and then so so that changes so a lot, but yeah these are just adjustments then. I mean, we, we have to do those adjustments when you buy here. Like if the vendor has prepaid three, uh, two months worth of their council rates, for example, then you would adjust for the portion of time that you're going to own the property, um, that the vendor's not no longer going to own the property. So as, I guess that's yeah. what you're talking about there, your adjustments. But they're, they're sort of costs that you would incur in owning the property normally, right? You're going to have to pay those taxes as an owner. Um, so they're not necessarily purchasing costs. They're just um, additional money that a, a, a buyer needs to be aware of. Um, I'm also curious because we started talking about what happened back in the GFC, you know, when that free and free and easy lending and people were borrowing without even having an income and it's just crazy. So that was like a, I guess, um, an opportunity seen by very opportunistic financial players to say, hey, we can make money out of this. Now, I'm presuming that the ability to get finance to buy a property in, the, in America is no longer quite so free and easy. What 
has changed? Um, has the the whole industry now been regulated? Um, and you know, how is it different? How how when you say now that you you're about to go into recession or you're sort of jumping bouncing in and out of recession, you're not you're saying it won't crash. The property market will not crash like it crashed back in the GFC or the Great Depression or what'd you call it? Not the Great Depression. Right, the Great Recession. <laughs> great Recession. We had the Great Depression in the thirties. In the twenties. So they would have yeah, had yeah, to yeah. go Great Depression Great Depression to Electric Boogaloo, but they went Great Recession. <laughs> great recession. So in yeah. the Great Recession, um, so what is fundamentally different structurally that will prevent that happening again? Uh, the strictness of the loans is by far the um, biggest piece of it. Um, harking back to the big short, uh, subprime, it wasn't just no income, no documentation. It was low credit scores. It was people that were likely to yeah. fail. Um, right. That 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 is the biggest difference is that uh and, and that came through government regulation um after the great recession we had uh something that was formed by the democrats called the cfpb the consumer financial protection bureau and they came and dropped government guidelines well what they did is they came and they dropped big fat fines on everybody who did subprime lending and then the yeah. lenders regulated themselves but yeah when you when you can go online and you can read and uh one of the the coaching programs for real estate agents that i've been working with since i started he said this stat back in 2008 that i have never heard anybody talk about since and it blows my mind and this is why it's not going to crash right now the average has three hundred thousand dollars worth of equity equity mm -hmm. cures everything there won't be foreclosures Home equity lines of credit were created in the States about the uh, somewhere in the, I think it was the mid eighties and people could go in and use their home as an ATM. If the home had equity, you use your home as collateral and take money out. So from the eighties till the year 2000, it slowly became something that was happening. There were $60 billion worth of home equity lines of credit out in the year 2000. So, that took a good 15 years or so in 2006 there were 626 billion yeah so as the market went up and everybody thought this was going to go on forever there was a mentality that this the same reason everybody bought second homes because they said just do it you only make a hundred dollars a month in cash flow but yeah. it's going to double yeah. by the time we hit 2008 and then yeah. but the, that many people being that leveraged is one of the big reasons why there were 600% more homes on the market and caused the crash. Mm. So, so you, do, when yeah. you say 600%, uh, is that hyperbole or, or true? 600% nope. increase six times. Yep. Wow. We've got okay. 1.25 million listings. We, we, we were hovering around 900,000 homes for sale when everyone was, was making fun of my social media and telling me I was an idiot and we're going to crash, we're going to crash, it's too expensive. And I said, you're half right, it's too expensive, but we're not going to crash because we have 900,000 homes and when the market was crazy, there were six or seven million homes on the market. Got it, got mm, it, yep. Yeah, wow, it's a huge difference, right? Like, mm. um, similar problems in Australia, like we've got a very low listing, nas national listing number, um, so it does vary across different cities and different pockets, et cetera, where you're going to get, um, you know, higher listings and a lot of people running for the hills and everyone just sitting on their hands. But 
ultimately we've got very low listings and people are sitting on their hands, you know, and, and riding out the storm. And so um, that will protect the market. Just out of, you might not know this, but I mean, what multiple of income, you know, let's say you just do some rough numbers in your head, how much money you can borrow. Do you have any idea of what, you know, let's so, say someone's on 50,000 US, is it, you know, six times that they could roughly borrow, like 300,000 US. Do you have any idea on those numbers? Like, is there like a natural multiple that people can put on? There isn't a natural multiple because uh, the debt to income ratio is 100, is a gigantic part of uh, the equation. So yeah. uh, depending on how, depending on how much debt you have monthly, Somebody can making uh, $75,000, one person can qualify for 500000 one person can qualify for 300000 I have a yeah. lot of clients that have a $700 car payment, and they'll have to pay off $10,000 gotcha. on the car, and now they're $100,000 more. But, yeah. you know, in general, about 75000 to get into entry level, seventy five to 80000 if you're free of debt, which is why so many people are freaking out right now. Because that's we hit four hundred and eight thousand average entry level home, uh, median sales price, and the average wages for your twenty two, twenty three year old trying to get what we call the American dream, move out and buy their house with the picket fence. They're not making seventy five, eighty thousand dollars their first year out. Sounds similar then, because yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously consumer debt, right? You know, student loans. I'm sure they factor into it, like they do in Australia. We've got something similar. You know, car loans, credit cards, um, you know, the all sorts of they that probably reduce how much you can borrow similar to here. But you know, if you wanted to sort of borrow something about four hundred or ish, you know, you need income around seventy five, which is sort of sort of similar. We've had a we could borrow six or seven times income. It used to be maybe ten times income back in twenty fourteen. So it was a lot. That's we had a similar um, you know, boom happening in twenty twelve to twenty seventeen. Um but now it's only five times income, so it's really reduced um, how much people can sort of borrow. I'm just interested around the sale process. Like in the UK, they, you know, this I'm not buying your property unless I sell my, my other property, and I want you to sign a contract to say that I've. And then <laughs> I'm not going to buy, and I'm not selling my property until I buy this other property. And so all of a sudden, there's this chain, and it just goes back to centuries. I think it does, but. Yeah, but it's just stupid in my mind. Like everyone's waiting on someone else, and the things are falling over. And it's like, oh, I didn't buy it in the end because that buyer, that seller, couldn't find something else. And so, so I just wasted six or twelve months of my life, and now I have to start it again. Do you have any of these chain issues over in the US, or you know, is it, or is everyone just signing unconditional contracts over there? Like, or is it like, you know, three months to get your finance ready? Like, what's the natural process with the sale um, over there? It absolutely fluctuates with the market. Over the last three years, mm. the sellers have been in control and they could ask for whatever they want. The natural uh, solution is what we call a rent back or a lease back. Uh, congratulations, we have a deal. We will close this deal in 30 days and you, Mr. Buyer, or Mrs. Buyer, will be the owner of the property, but we're going to stay here for three more months. Now, in a normal, usually, usually you try to do it for like a month or two. And usually you'll negotiate it. What's interesting is in a regular market, you negotiate it at the price of the buyer's new loan. They're what we right. call okay. PITI, the principal interest taxes and insurance. So if grandma's been living there for 25 years and she sells the house and her mortgage payment is 800 bucks and the couple comes in with three and a half percent down. So they have a full mortgage of almost the full LTV on the property. 
they're suddenly if they want to rent back they're like if the market was if they're the only buyer they could be like well we'll let you stay there but you now need to pay our $4200 a month mortgage so but then it shifted and over the last 2 or 3 years we've seen sellers going okay i've got seven different buyers here who's going to let me live here for 3 months for free that's yeah. how the chain that's how the chain has been changed uh wow. in a regular flat market my recommendation to every seller is uh do you guys have pods there these they like they look like the back of uh semi trucks and they stick them on your on your so it, uh, imagine yeah. the back of yeah 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 the storage unit thing yeah. you fill yeah, it yeah, up yeah. call them like tax, taxi boxes here i actually sometimes recommend the clients you know yeah. we're getting a bit nervous around yeah exactly don't worry about storage just throw it in this shipping container um yep. And, and then, then they go store go it somewhere. Rent, rent an Airbnb yeah. somewhere else that's furnished and then get the shipping container delivered rather than, um, yeah. Yeah. So that, Especially that's, one of those empty Airbnbs that they're having trouble yeah. renting it out. <laughs> and get them cheap now. But, yeah, it's, a, it's, always been, it's always been a problem and it's always, you know, the sellers uh, try to control the game too much. And I, I – uh, what I tell my folks here, here because there is the rent back possibility, but what was funny is people didn't even know about that in 2018, 19, and 20, and then it became a thing again. And, you know, so I'm telling my buyers it's got, it's got time and money. Which one do you want to give up? Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So, David, I'm sure you've got plenty of them, but um, can you come up with a property Dumbo for us, a, a story of... A buying story or a selling story that's uh, in a little story we can learn from? Uh, well, we have lockboxes here. And so uh, if the listing agent doesn't tell the seller I'm coming by, I will occasionally use the key and go in and see somebody in their robe coming out of the shower. <laughs> that happened. Uh, but <laughs> I think probably, probably the biggest Dumbo uh, that we see, oh boy, it's... <sighs> is seeing people uh, assume that um, with their limited amount of knowledge um, that they're go going to get the best deal for this. And uh, here, the, init the initial negotiation for the price of the home is the first negotiation. We typically in California, we have 17 days for the buyer beware due diligence period. And there can be two rather extensive and costly negotiations that happen within that after the home inspection if they find if the buyer finds something in a yep. normal market there that needs to be negotiated if the yep. appraisal comes in low that's something that needs to be negotiated because the lender's not only going to pony up a certain amount of money so the biggest blunders that i've seen is people coming in and saying i know what i'm doing i'm going to go to zillow this home's worth this and even though I open up Zillow and I show them on the Zestimates page at the bottom that it says that, you know, they're only within 5%, 60% of the time, and 5% on $400,000 isn't chump change, um, mm. I, it's, it, it's not as funny as walking in on somebody naked, but seeing people, <laughs> seeing people go so hard and thinking that it's a car and they're going to get their offer accepted and that they're going to drive off the lot and the deal's over. And then suddenly we find they find something terrible in the inspection and the owner is basically like, eh, screw you, pal. 
you're not I, I you already you already ground me down you grinded my price so hard you got a low rate so no i'm not doing any repairs for you that's yeah that's okay. the biggest blunder i see people do on the finance side do you see that it's common that people do get low valuations like in australia it's not really common like so the bank's really just a it's almost a tick the box exercise it's um quite scary actually we've made a change where we our banks are doing desktop valve so they're just checking the valuation yeah. from their computer and they're not even paying 250 dollars for an actual person to go and take photos and actually check the properties what is it and desktop hours are, are widely off it's, it's a change that i think the banks are stupid making they're going down mm -hmm. this it's a it's a to save 200 dollars on a two a million dollar mortgage that's just crazy so but do you see people like buying a property they get this 17 days or whatever you call it um due diligence period then the bank comes in and says i know you said 400 but we think it's worth 370 and we're only going to lend 80 percent on 370 is that quite common you get in this negotiation there uh so after the the great recession or what did you call it the gfc yeah 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 after the gfc and the great and the and the great recession um the appraisers got regulated really hard and changed right. all the rules uh because what they were doing because the market was going up so fast they were saying eh, it's fine and the buyers were writing in the offer fifty thousand over the six hundred thousand dollar price. They were writing mm. six fifty offers with fifty thousand credit back to them. So they were basically money laundering. They were getting a fifty thousand dollar cash loan <laughs> for five percent. So <laughs> they came in and changed that, and and then in changing that, they created a new appraisal management companies. They cut the fees in half. So now the appraisers, God bless the ones who are doing a good job, but they're pointless. They're, they go in and they measure with their tape and they, as far as their accuracy, it solely depends on the market. We are just starting to see the beginning of prices adjust. I guarantee you we're going to hear all kinds of combination between people listing their house way too high because Margaret's house in the summer sold for 625 and it was a dump. Um, you know, and yeah. so they're going to list it for 700. As soon as these prices go, the appraisers are going to start. We're going to hear a lot of appraisal, uh, complaints and whining in 2023. It goes with the market <laughs> to answer your question. Yeah. So you're saying, yep, yep, yep. They're, they're suffering their personal opinion. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, and it makes me laugh too. You're talking about the the estimates, you know, the Zillow, um, these AVMs or automated valuation models, and and there's this assumption in a lot of this prop tech space that well, it's it's because it's um, it's arm's length. It's not the vendor deciding or the buyer deciding. Then therefore, it's reliable, and everyone's just going to agree with it. And it doesn't actually work that way. If it's a hot market, the vendor's going to say, oh, I, I don't agree with that. I'm going to get more money for my property. If it's a buyer's market, the buyer's going to say, I can screw the vendor. And, and it all comes down to human behavior and emotion. And it just makes me laugh. There's so many. And it, it, here in Australia, obviously, we've got uh, quite a lot of prop tech um, businesses, you know, cropping up. Some of them are really really elegant in terms of they are they've identified great problems and are really coming up very elegant solutions but a lot of them are very naive i think in terms of what the real problem is and you talked earlier about you know that this the very busy space over there because vendors are paying six percent 
selling fees. And of course, there's a real financial incentive to try to get it out of the realtor's hands in, onto a onto a um, onto an app or onto a um, digital solution. Yeah. And there's a real much more pressing uh, need or desire, or I guess a, a imperative for that. Whereas here, that it's not as pressing. There's not as much money at, at stake. But also this idea that you can digitize um, to, to replace the lack of trust that's, you know, when you've, you've got vendors that are greedy and buyers that are also greedy. It's ridiculous. Mm. It, it, the, the Zillow model I could talk about for hours, uh, which was the, the Silicon based Silicon Valley based tech company that was the first one to create the, you know, what they were doing, but mm. they have gone through so many things uh, in, you know, the, they are taking money from realtors who advertise on their site and they've been telling realtors we're on your side we're on your side we're on your yeah. side oops last year they got their broker's license and then they <laughs> tried it and they're trying to sell stuff themselves and then in november they had four hundred thousand iBuyer homes that weren't selling and the whole iBuyer program went bankrupt so they, there's something to be said about you know it's, yeah. I was going to say, it, just, it scares me, the desktop evaluations and online evaluations. They scare me. Yeah. We should do yeah. an episode just on that, I reckon. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's put that on the books. I can't wait. Right. Yeah. Zillow tear down. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's just the prop tech stuff's an interesting thing because I think there's other, not just Zillow, it's Open Door. You know, there's lots yeah. of, um, because Mel, uh, Mel, the America is such a big market, right? We're talking you know, mm. 16 times the size of Australia. And you know, as soon as you've got a tech thing, you've got much bigger market to go and play. So let's test it out in the American market, got much bigger scope and valuations and um, et cetera. You guys have tried so much around the property market that uh, companies in Australia come and try, right? We tried to, you know, we had a, a certain like a real low cost um, purple bricks in the UK was quite successful over there. In Australia, they came and tried here and didn't didn't were here only six months and had to leave. You know, um, anecdotally, sort of I know exactly what the dates were. But yeah, I think it'd be awesome to talk about that stuff because I think it's a a lot of people think it's so much easy just to make this amazing tech and it would solve all the problems with with the property market. And um, we see them sort of come and go and fail. The banks tried something similar to that with Zillow, like. They said, we don't need mortgage brokers. You know, mortgage brokers are the yeah. problem, not us. Let's try to kill the mortgage brokers. And um, it sort of failed. And then they sort of come back and say, oh, we love you again. And, you know, et cetera. Um, yeah, it's so short-sighted, some of these these moves. And uh, thanks for kind of enlightening us on the, the American market. I do think it's wise to think globally and um, think about things that are working in our favor and things that aren't working in our favor because, um, yeah, it's not all sort of rosy. So thanks for coming on, David. I hope that uh, we don't create another global crash. Sounds to me like you guys have things a little bit better in control over there with the way that you handle your mortgages. So hopefully you'll do better and uh, uh, hopefully we don't ruin it for you again. Way to go, America. <laughs> if you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.